Welcome to Fintech Insider Takeovers. I'm Simon Taylor and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, David Breer. How are you doing, David? Very well. Super early morning. Like, uh, I'm, I'm not used to doing this so early in the day, are you? No, I'm not. But, you know, there's caffeine. There in, is uh, caffeine. And yeah. we're in lovely Paddington, which was really sunny but cold this morning. Do you know what? I, I was surprised at how easy I found it to get here, wasn't you? Like, it was, like, super easy. No, None of that, like, can in the, the sort of tuna can tube situation that I thought I was going to have. So it was good. Yeah, well, um, we've got somebody else with us today. We should probably introduce our guest. Can we not uh, just talk about commuting for another 40 minutes? Well, I mean, it'd be like commuting inside us. It'd be a different <laughs> podcast. Uh, uh, we're coming to you today from the Finastra offices in London's Paddington uh, for the very special Finastra Takeover Show. Uh, joining us, well, we've got the big names. Uh, we've got the big hitters. We've got the pleasure of sitting down with, of course, Mr. Simon Paris, the CEO. How are you doing? Yeah, good morning. Doing well. Thank you so much for being with us. Ellie Rosner, the Chief Product and Chief Technology Officer. How are you doing? Good, doing great. One title wasn't enough. You had to wasn't have one. Wasn't enough. I'm looking for the third one. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Martin Herring, who's Chief Marketing Officer. How are Good you doing? Good morning. Doing Th- well. Thank you. And Nicola Hamilton, uh, Senior Director of Brandon Comms. How are you doing? I'm very well. A bit windblown from my commute, but all good. Yeah, it was windy. Yeah, what happened? It was like lovely like weather in London yesterday. So anyway, sorry. Enough weather, about the weather. Commuting. <laughs> Can you tell we're British? Yeah, like I was going to say, it's the most British opening to a podcast <laughs> we've ever done. Um, so for our listeners around the world uh, who might be unfamiliar, probably because they live under some sort of rock um, where moss grows, can you give us a quick overview of what Finastra does? Yeah, by all means. So maybe they've been living under a rock. But in fairness, Finastra is a relatively new brand. We've yeah. only existed as a brand for just under two years now. So who are we? We're a global software company headquartered out of London. We employ around 10,000 people around the world. And we focus really on three things. One is core applications, core software applications for financial services companies around the world. And also our platform proposition, which invites the world's innovators to build their capabilities directly on our platform, leveraging our applications. Exciting stuff. And you've been leading the firm since, what, June of last year? Yeah, so it's now just over nine months. Nine months. What surprised you? Did you get here and go, ah, it's not what I was sold, it's so different? Or has it actually been kind of kind of an interesting journey? What, what are your reflections? Yeah, no, I think the biggest surprise is I'm still in the job. <laughs> <laughs> no, but anyway. You so, you know, it's been a fantastic nine months. I think what you see is after we formed Finastra from a combination of different mergers over time, you know, the... the a number of things. First of all, the 10,000 people that we have are really implicated in what it is we're trying to do. And it's a very ennobling purpose. We're trying to unlock the potential of people and businesses all over the world. And people subscribe to that. I think we can do well by doing good. So that's kind of point one. Uh, point two, there are kind of only three mega vendors in the world, and we're one of them. But I think we're very much ahead of the game, in particular because of what Ellie and his team is driving around the platform and where that platform will take us. So I think the overall feeling is we're on a journey and it's uh, it's accelerating. I think that's an important point, right? Because you talked about core and then you talked about platform. Right. At least, should we just explode what that means a little bit? Because a lot of people who work in banking are familiar with core banking and then all of the stuff that kind of sits around it. But it's probably worth just a bit of a refresher. You know, what did that world look like 10 years ago? And what's, what's platform doing to kind of change that? So if you take a step back, the banks have core systems that have been in usage for 15, 20, 25 years. So those, those systems started to age from a technology stack perspective. And what it did to the banks is that it prevented them from moving as fast as they wanted. Point number one. Point number two, after the great financial crisis, they were being attacked and disemitiated by challenger banks, neo banks on the small challenger banks, the small entities, and the big techs, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Tencent, Alibaba, and other players. Mm-hmm. So the banks have to move faster and have to 
get out of the mode of they're not invented here, change the culture inside the bank of opening themselves to an open ecosystem for open innovation, which is what Finestra is all about. Our mission is to become the number one provider of an open platform for innovation in the financial services industry. So the platform is what enables us to open the ecosystems to create a variety of solutions for the banks with partnerships to enable them to compete, to enable them to move faster and get to the point where there isn't really good predictability around what innovation is going to look like. That's the ultimate game. That's the true essence of what an ecosystem is. Very cool. Can we can we go back? What's a mega vendor? Yeah. I don't know what that is, but it sounds really cool. Right? right? <laughs> no, I mean, in fairness, our industry reflects the industry that we serve. So the financial services industry is under massive consolidation. So if you go back 10 years mm. to the great financial crisis, who knows, but there were around 20,000 or so uh, financial institutions. There were 15,000 just in the U.S. That's compressed over time to just over, say, 12 or 10 or 9 in the, in the U.S., and we reflect that consolidation, that rationalization, that simplification that's uh, occurring. So we have built up through mergers, if you will, through acquisitions, to become one of the top three players in the world of software yeah. as ranked by software revenues. Cool. Amazing. That's, mm. uh, like, and having that many people aligned under that strategy in, in terms of, like you say, changing that, uh, that landscape for the banks is a uh, no small feat, right? Right. It's been an intense period, but now it's a single vision and a single mission across the whole world. We're very fortunate that, you know, half of what we do is in the Americas and half of what we do is in the rest of the world. So we're very exposed to innovation and ideas across, you know, more than 120 countries. And that's a that's a privilege. And, and then also lots of countries, but lots of different parts of banking, too. Right. right? So do you see, uh, you know, you guys focus mainly on the retail side, the wholesale, cap markets, and where's the poll? Because I often hear a lot of cap markets folks say, oh, that innovation stuff, that's just for retail, right? I mean, are you seeing that or is it, is it a little bit different? Innovation happens across the board. I mean, if you boil down the, the, the pressure and the challenge that the banks have, you boil it down to a few very essential things. They have to improve the engagement that they have with their customers, be it corporate or consumers. One of the key ways for them to drive it, the common themes across all those segments, sectors that we serve, treasury, capital markets, corporate banking, payments, retail, whatever you want, is that they have to improve the customer engagement. They do it through by a digital means, digital engagement through different channels. So it's a consistent, unified communication to the customers and the corporate through the channels. While at the same time, they have to make sure that they're compliant and apply to the regulations, comply with the regulations. So those are the common themes that we see across all of our lines of business. Do you see them starting in different places as well? Because we, we talk about like there's a lot of people trying to evolve the core and build a platform of the top. There's a lot of people doing different strategies around it. You know, is there an advantage to having more than one strategy here? Should you be looking at many things? And, and is your platform enabling people to do that? The platform enables you to move in parallel across all the lines of business. The platform is bringing together everything that a bank does. Mm. It takes It enables the banks to eventually in the future look at everything that they do across all the silos that they have within the banks, the treasury, the capital department, all of those, the retail banking, bring them together to expose the customers that they have in a 360 view. Mm-hmm. That's what the platform does. Interesting stuff. And, and maybe picking up on that, uh, we are serving 90% what a bank needs to drive their operations. Uh, when Simon talked about being a mega vendor, 
no other vendor can offer that breadth and depth of the products. Mm. And that's the base for creating a platform. Mm. Uh, if you're just a siloed vendor, not a lot of people would use you as a platform. If you are a fintech and you want to start maybe with retail and expand to lending or payments, mm. you want to go with a platform that offers all of that. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because like you say, the, the silos that existing banks actually have today, replacing that with more silos is actually just in, instilling next year's legacy, right? So actually being in a situation where you've got capability that actually bridges all of those gaps between them, especially if you're a, a big multinational bank, it would be crazy just to keep building on silo and silo. Exactly. But, but a lot of that is kind of reflected in how big banking organizations work, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, you're a big you know, multinational bank, you've got 16 different CIOs across, you know, 16 different countries with different budgets, with different business lines. Um, that's almost part of the problem, isn't it? Getting them to all kind of agree in terms of the direction and the strategy and actually then allowing that investment in a, you know, a single way of doing product or uh, even how they consolidate data to have that single view mm -hmm. across business areas. Um, are you finding the, the narrative has changed to allow you to have those discussions? Because I guess, you know, fintech has brought about at least the ability to, you know, really push these guys to do what's best for them. The change is happening. Uh, it's a cultural change. Mm. It's not a technology change. The business model is changing, which drives changes in the operation model and the infrastructure model of the banks. The hardest thing to do is to change the culture within the banks. I think that if you look at the dynamics that happened over the last several years, in the beginning, fintechs were perceived to be competitors to the bank. Today, the, the banks are looking for more collaboration. And that's what FusionFabric.cloud, our platform, enables them is to co-innovate together mm. through collaboration. Okay. So that's, that's one of the big trends that we see with them. So we, I think we see, uh, we did a recent After Dark um, about sort of those collaborations between the fintechs and the banks. We've started to see one-off examples of that. I mean, as you look into the next 12 months, you know, does success look like more people adopting a platform, more fintechs on those platform? And where do you think the balance is? Because can... Is there a way to easily do more of those at scale? Because doing one is nice, but it feels like you don't need one, you need 20, you need 30. I, I think that's exactly the, the intention of our platform. When you see to, uh, today, it's a one-to-one -one relationship between a fintech and a bank. Mm. Uh, either the, the fintech is successful and then may, they might be acquired by the bank afterwards, lucky win. Uh, but a, a lot of times that is not successful, so the fintech has to sw go to the next bank. Mm -hmm. This is always a very one-to-one -one proprietary connectivity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And fintechs are struggling even to get to the, the real uh, data center of that bank. The CIO of a bank will get a heart attack if the fintech knocks on the door and wants to get access. Uh, what we are offering right now is, is, a, is a complete neutral platform uh, that offers all these core banking systems in the back. So fintechs can plug onto that platform test their applications, run their applications, monetize their applications, have a distribution channel on a worldwide basis, and that's attractive. So with a fintech programs once on our platform, and we give them access to probably 9,000 banks that we are already having as a customer. Yeah. So that's a very uh, interesting ecosystem for these fintechs. Absolutely, like you say, it's not just the aspiration. You know, like you can find you know, any CEO of any bank anywhere who wants to do a thing, but actually integrating it into their systems and actually allowing them to do something with it beyond the, you know, a handshake and a piece of paper is, is somewhat of a challenge, right? So that, into, you know, that as a, uh, you know, be, being able to pre-integrate a bunch of these guys and being in a situation where they're already onto the platform is sounds like a win. That's the dream, isn't it? One, one point to add here, I mean, the banks can't really do a reap and replace to the core systems. You just can't do it. It's a process that takes time. So one of the challenges they have, and they're under 
offense. <clears throat> They're being attacked by the fintechs, by the big, uh, big techs, and so forth. So they're in a defensive move. In a defensive move, they're looking for a, how can I protect my investment that I have over the last 20 years in microsystems, hundreds of millions of dollars, and at the same time, enable myself to get into the new world of the digital world, the ecosystems, and innovate a little bit faster. So to help them neutralize the competition first, this is what FusionFemic.cloud does, mm -hmm. because you don't have to rip and replace your existing core system you now integrate into FusionFemic.cloud. And like Martin said, it's not a point-to-point -point integration. It's a one-to-many integration. Mm -hmm. So you enable yourself to start innovating from the outside in on the edge with digital capabilities across all the lines of business. Mm -hmm. Over time, as you get to the point where it's time for you to replace your core system, you do it in a phased approach as opposed to a big bang. Yeah, I think that phased approach is everything. We've seen so many of those big bangs end up in, in bad headlines, right? It, it, well, it's, it's taking big bang to another definition, essentially, yeah. on a lot of them, isn't it? But, uh, uh, definitely not the way. Yeah, and, and having that platform could, could be hugely helpful. So, I mean, Simon, if we came back to you in 12 months, you know, nine months plus the 12, then you'd be nearly at the two-year mark. What would success look like? I mean, it, it's, it's starting to feel like a performance review. Like, this is yeah, yeah. 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 Have you met my boss? Uh, <laughs> we're also at uh, what looks like a boardroom table as it well. Is, like, exactly. This is an intervention. Uh, no, it's not. Yeah. Yeah, so if we zoom into the future and then look back, what would success look like? I would say three things. One is, from the core application business, continue progress in terms of adding more customers and more data to the five areas that we serve 90% of the bank's needs. So success one would be more customers, more data in the core applications. Success two would be the platform business. And you should maybe say a few words about where we're going with Fusion One and what's coming up in May and mm -hmm. the relationship with Microsoft. Success would be X amount of fintechs working aggressively on the platform, Y amount of developers working aggressively on the platform, and even our own innovations as well directly on that platform. And I'll leave it for you guys to enumerate what that would mean. And the third success, when you think about core applications and platform, would be our first step into what we would call the marketplace. And we've already taken that first step. We can talk about it later if you like. It's something we call Lendercom. Mm -hmm. The first customer is already consuming it, and it oh, will yeah, change yeah. the way liquidity is released. It will change the way liquidity is untrapped, if you will. So those three things, applications, platform, marketplace. Guys, you would add anything? Well, uh, when you, you look again in, into our vision statement uh, where we want to enable and empower people and business by that platform, that was the core idea 18 months ago when we created Finastra. The, the change to Finastra, the new branding, was not just a, uh, changing the logo and the color. It was a fundamental shift, uh, and we want to really change the way software is written, deployed, monetized, and consumed going forward in whole financial services. Um, so we created a coalition with, with Microsoft because we are not a data center vendor and the platform needs a data center in the background. So we created a, a quite tight coalition with Microsoft to deploy that platform on a worldwide scale. Mm -hmm. uh, and on that platform, and, and Ellie can go more into the details, we, we wanted to create a developer portal where you just log in and you get access to all these APIs, you can play around. Truly and you want a mechanism how to deploy the application that you have created. And finally, all these fintechs, they want a monetization mechanism, how to sell uh, that, that kind of software on a worldwide scale. So this is where Ellie stepped in and created with his team all these API layers and all this software on top that enables and empowers this, these fintech. It's not just fintechs. We also want that academic institutions like universities and schools are getting included in the financial services world. Because when you leave a university today as a student in IT and, and you want to go to a bank as a developer, you have never touched a financial system before. 
And now with that kind of platform, we can allow students uh, to access these systems way before and get trained on, on that. But this is also beneficial for system integrators, for ISVs. Um, it's, it's a whole new dimension uh, and, and kind of ecosystem. I think it's probably fair to say historically the test and the QA environment looked nothing like the live environment. But actually, when you've got a platform in the place, it is the same. It's just one of them doesn't let you do full transactions and it, and it really limits you. But what you're dealing with is the same thing. So I'm learning on the real thing rather than learning on something that's kind of a simulation. It's, it's quite different. Sounds like you attended one of our meetings yesterday on the cloud operations team. Uh, <laughs> I, I genuinely didn't. I just have been a big fan of DevOps for more we, than a decade. We do have openings. <laughs> I got to tell you, I think we'll be all right. But, um, this term platformification, though, it's been talked up for a while. You know, people get excited by it. But, like, it's been talked about, like I was saying, the, my notes say five years, but I've been hearing it for at least ten. Uh, and, you know, what is the definition to you? Is there a difference between we have an API and we have a platform? And, and could, you put, could you make that a bit more real? Because I think um, there's, there's been a lot of marketing out there. But what are the real benefits and, and what would I use? Because I think the developers being able to pick up and use something is one thing. And but put that into timelines or real constraints. Think about the platform as, uh, well, what it is, the physics of it, it's software. Mm -hmm. And it's a platform as a service. It saves time for developers or whoever is using it to go to market very quickly, to innovate quickly. It comes, as Martin described, with a set of sandboxes. So you can experiment without really impacting your production system. Then we give you a runtime. So you as an application developer, a bank, an ISV, a student, whatever you are, you, de you, you develop an app and very easily, without doing much, you can deploy it into a runtime environment. And then as Mark Martin described earlier, you have the marketing channel, the app store. We have an app store where you can market your solution. So what it, the benefits, the value proposition of the platform, A, it enables you to move very quickly. It saves you all the time. It takes away all the efforts for the mundane tasks, the commodities, the things that don't really add value around managing the API, monitoring the system, dealing with security and authentication, certification, regulatory compliance. The, the platform, FusionFamic.cloud, takes all that pain away, makes you go faster. It also opens it up to a community of people that are going to be onboarded, right, and develop apps on top of that platform, which then creates an ecosystem of partners that can co-innovate together. That's the essence of what the platform is. And I think another important thing is that we're in, you know, we've come together as a, a, a company that's got these core systems that we've got years and years of experience in. We're opening those systems up on the platform so developers can come and develop on those core systems mm. so the banks that are purchasing them know that they are proven yeah. and that they work on those systems. So I think that's a huge advantage in terms of rather than just a new vendor without those core systems coming in to just say you can develop it, it's proven, it'll be certified, tested, etc. It's, so. it's worked against the real thing. Yeah, I yeah. think, I think uh, there's lots of like new technology, but like being deployed at scale, that's what, uh, you know, uh, if you're a procurement department at, in a big bank and you're like, well, this sounds interesting, but yeah. who's actually used this thing? You know, the fact that you guys are actually deployed in so many places is a real a real big thing exactly like to the point that you were making earlier like this all if you're a tech vendor and, and you're you know somebody in the technology space you're an engineer you're like this is music to everybody's ears right now if you're in a big bank how much of this like you say is like a cultural shock to people because big banks are used to sort of oscillating at a certain speed and now you're giving them the, uh, you're taking away an excuse because people are used to going, mm. well our technology won't allow us to do this type of stuff but now that's not the, re the reality right well, 
actually the banks are in some cases welcoming a yeah. platform for internal development mm. because it helps them go faster. Sure. We have one of our demos that shows how a business analyst within a bank can go and create an app from zero to a, an app running on a mobile device, a tablet or an, a, a phone within five minutes Nice. without writing a single line of code. That's a powerful proposition, That's even for non-software developers. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, go ahead. No, in fact, to build on that, the, uh, they go from cultural shock to cultural release, because what they realize is the developers in banks, and we estimate there's more than 2 million developers inside banks globally, they can move from, let's call it boring back office, non-differentiated business process, yeah. they can move to true innovation, mm. consuming those applications that we do, through the platform. But is that a different skill set as well? Like, is, is that always the same people or is that a transfer of, of who's doing that job? Because I think for a long time, the, the skills that I'd learned to be that person it might be quite different than the skills I need to do this new world. I mean, is there also some cultural shift there in terms of not just mindset, but skills transference? The traditional software engineers that, that there are millions of those can absolutely continue to use the, the platform we're encouraging to. Then we're providing tools. They can use things like Postman and things like that to test the API. We give them all the sandboxes. I love but Postman. The, just side note, if you've not checked out Postman and you just want to experience what it's like to use an API for the first time, it's a really great way, great way to learn and test something. Absolutely. Sorry, absolutely. <laughs> but as, as we said earlier, we're also enabling people that do not have technology skills to, go, to come and use the platform. Mm -hmm. The third leg of that would be exposing the platform through all the data that we're bringing together, right, to data scientists within the banks. Mm -hmm. And that's another skill, you know, another type of profession that didn't really exist five, six years ago. So we talked a lot about the platform. Um, what does success look like for it? Because it, is this like a vision you're selling me? Is, are you selling me the dream or is this real and you've got customers using it? Um, uh, maybe you ask uh, before, what is the real advantage of platformification? What does it bring to the bank? Mm -hmm. uh, and think about this way. Um, think about the B2C space, Amazon, Uber, and all these. We know these platforms for the last decade. And all these platforms are now creeping into the banking area. Mm -hmm. Amazon, as of today, can probably replace 50% of all financial services from your private bank. So these big techs are creeping into the banking area. And I think what the bank has to ask themselves is, what kind of business model do I want to push going forward? Why not turning it around and creeping into the retail space, into the insurance space, into the mm -hmm. car space? And we have examples. Take Ping An in, in China. Um, they started as, as a big bank, but now they have built a, a huge platform. They do healthcare, and connected they do insurance. Yeah, they all of that, health and insurance, they are taking care of the life of their clients. Yeah. It's a total different approach, and they're so successful. And I think Europe and US is lagging far behind that. And I think this is where we want to see the next bank that would adopt our platformification strategy and say, yes, I want to be the platform in the future mm. for my customers and serve them across the whole customer lifecycle. And therefore, they need a platform like that. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think it's the, we've talked about this a lot, it's the transition between silos of products and creation of services. Like actually, how are you pulling all of these things together to actually add value to the end users? And it's not really technology versus FS or retail. It's like, the people with the biggest communities. And actually, if you've got a huge community, how do you continue to evolve it? There's many big banking organizations that if they get more customers, the regulator is going to start to step in. Yeah. So, uh, you know, being in a situation where you monetize on a much broader scale, yeah. and this is something that, you know, people like Ping An or, you know, even, uh, you know, like um, what we've seen with uh, WeChat and, the super know, apps. and, and Financial and these guys, you know, they're actually 
they're looking much more um, horizontal at uh, revenue opportunities than just going super deep and acquiring every current account on the planet type thing. So, yeah, and you talked about cultural change as well, mm. but what you see at the big banks is that they're bringing in their new like t- chief digital officers mm. and they're coming from the retail space because those guys know how to build loyalty, how to build yeah. communities, and that's where you're starting to see that shift mm. because they're making it. It might not be happening that quickly, yeah. but they, de- they know that they've got to in order to they're compete. They're bringing in those other skills. I want to come back yeah. to that point, though. Is, is anybody using this platform or is it a division? Is it real? Um, the, the, the platform is, is real and we are launching it uh, to the outside world in a big way in May uh, 21st May. and 22nd. And May and is, the, is the big date. Yeah, tell me more about what's happening on that date. Um, you've got a, a defense? So the, so the name of the event is Fusion One. Um, and the intention of that is really to present the platform uh, to a broader audience. Uh, this, these are business people, um, IT architects, but really core developer. Mm-hmm. Um, Ellie's team, and, and you can t- talk more about this, has, has prepared a lot of APIs uh, against our core systems. Mm-hmm. So you will see on stage not just a set of good PowerPoints, but real case scenarios okay. where we connected fintechs to our core systems, where we show uh, collaboration and co-creation between big uh, tech companies uh, and small fintechs uh, accessing uh, stuff through our platform. So a a real exciting event that we are co-hosting with Microsoft because I think that's really interesting to know. Uh, This is a co-hosted event because between Microsoft and Finastra really to change the world of financial software going forward. So for us, uh, a big event. I think there's something to be said about that impact that you can have. Like it's uh, having that many bank brands that you can touch. The amount of customers whose lives you can change as a result is is really quite significant if this platform really does take off. But you know, what about the existing core solutions and customer base? Do do they still fit in this strategy, or do they eventually start? Like, what what's the future for that look like? Yeah, I'll give a first answer. Then maybe Ellie, you can build on it. So you asked the vision versus reality. So yeah, we've got this co-joined approach with Microsoft. And uh, Ellie talks a lot about the co-location of data with infinite computing. So of our 9,000 customers, today 3,000 of them, actually more than 3,000, are on Azure, on Microsoft Azure. By the end of this calendar year, it'll be 5,000. Now, when you take FusionFabric.Cloud on Azure, with those 5,000 customers on Azure and our products moving to Azure, you start to co-locate huge community, to use your word, of data and infinite compute, and that is a moment of ignition. So yeah, Fusion One together with Microsoft will be a huge liftoff for that. Where are we today? We're working with friends and family. Maybe Ellie, you can say a little bit about where we are with friends and family that uh, are riding that first wave. Yeah, so we launched a developer preview for the platform in December. Uh We onboarded um, between 15 to 20 um, users, Uh internal fintechs as well as banks that have played with the developer preview, gave us feedback. The feedback, uh, based on the feedback, we modified it. So I think when we show it to the world, it's going to be uh, a really nice developer development environment. We're working, uh, as Simon and Martin said earlier, with Microsoft to um, accelerate the development of the platform with them. I have the honor and the pleasure to meet Scott Guthrie every couple of weeks. He's an EVP. He is Azure. Scott uh-huh. Guthrie is Azure. Uh-huh. And Scott is going to give a keynote at the event that Martin talked about, Fusion One as well as Eric Boyd, who is the EVP that's accountable for all of machine learning and artificial intelligence being, uh, within Microsoft. So um, it is real. It's going to market. It's going to production. We are exposing in May the first set of our APIs, the RESTful APIs that we have. As Nicola said, the, the strength of the platform and the pool and the magnet to use the platform, we have it. We got 9,000 customers and over 90% of what a bank needs. 
you expose that capability through a RESTful API, enable others to use it through the platform, bingo. So here's one example to bring it to life, and maybe you can say more on this, which is, uh, we call it MortgageBot. We've got about 1,500 customers or so who use this mortgage solution. It's, it's a cloud-based solution. It's on Azure. Then what you can see, because of the co-location of data and compute, is you can then say to your community banking customers, hey, listen, that community bank down the road concludes its transactions in seven days less than you. It gets a conversion rate of mm -hmm. Y better than you. You can do the benchmarking. Yeah, and you can use the machine learning to say if you were to do certain business practices that they do, then you could make that kind of improvement in your business performance. Yes. You can consume it through another platform like Microsoft Dynamics, right? You get the visualization. It's, it, uh, takes, it takes data, Simon, to the next level. I mean, if you look at the maturity levels of data, what happened, why it happened, what's going to happen, the mortgage bot solution that Simon just described, it actually gives you actionable insight to how do you make it happen. It's so specific to the point where it says, the second page of your mortgage application, you have 35% people drop in change the text box because this is where you lose customers. Product it's managers are be crying for that. Because <laughs> the amount of times that like you struggle to get the analytics of where your inefficiencies in a business process are, because we, we often talk about, we you see a lot of banks have digitized a paper process. So they've used digital to replace what the bank staff used to do. Mm -hmm. And actually that might not be the optimal digital process. So is there some process re-engineering in this as well that you're starting to encourage by showing people where those flows are, which is yes, you could follow your old process and, and scan in the PDF and then wait for a few days for somebody else to get it through the post. Or you could do it this other way, which kind of reduces that, which increases your conversion. And it's that second part of the sentence that becomes key, mm -hmm. the why, the business impact of it. Well, and it's bringing it up to a different level, right? You know, people have been looking at people like me from a customer level, but you're talking about bank-to-bank -bank data sets. That's a completely different game in terms of actually how you do it. And that, that level of optimization cross-bank could be dramatic in terms of, like you say, the conversion rates on application forms or even just uh, acquisition in the first place in terms of getting their rates right. So that's pretty amazing. It, yeah, I mean, to your point, we'll give you an example. So we use the language that you use. We, we use digitization and digitalization as two different concepts. So we use digitization, as you described, for the elimination of paper-based human processes that can be automated. Digitalization is an opportunity to rethink a business process. So to your point, what about rethinking or re-engineering? We would use rethinking a business process between banks. Here's an example. We have, by our estimations, about 10 to $12 trillion of complex loans uh, in our loan IQ system. That, but they're intransparent. I can't see what you have. You can't see what I have, right? They so, just as PDFs. Well, it's a complex system and, and it's a very complex uh, loan document, right? So you can't see it. Therefore, they resort to faxes, uh -huh. right? I didn't know faxes still exist. But it's faxes, <laughs> emails, phone calls. It's a long process. If you bring that through to Azure on an R3 quarter backbone, so it's a permission node, you can only see it yourself, then all of a sudden you have transparency real time all the time. You have a new business process. But more than that, you can say, hey, you know what? Leveraging this LenderCon platform, what if we take it to the next step and we allow you to start trading Based on that data. Yeah, exactly. Then all of a sudden, you have released trillions of dollars of liquidity. Mm -hmm. I think that's where stuff gets really exciting in mm -hmm. the cap markets world. Right. Um, when it was nice to have a truly digital, so we talk about truly digital versus digitized, because I think it just, exactly. it, it does get the, the differentiation, the digitalized versus digitized sound too similar. If you're truly digital across your entire internal processes, yep. 
that's good. But if you're truly digital end-to-end -end with other banks in capital markets, that's a real game changer. It's another game. Right, and that makes a difference on the balance sheet, which makes a difference to the share price. I think there's no nothing more between the eyes for the CEO than sort of share price moves. And if you think about the platform and all the fintechs that are going to develop on it, because if you've got your own processes internally, you're not probably the best people to think about or to rethink that process. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So with these new technologies and ways of thinking, that's going to come outside into the banks in terms of, hey, we've got this great new idea. This is a different way of doing it. And they can kind of test that even on one of our platforms in terms of, is that going to give them those better efficiencies that they're looking for? Yeah. People, other than the banks themselves, having to create that innovation, isn't it? So, exactly. And that, that's an interesting thing. I guess you've got a you've got a whole new type of customer in this now, haven't you? The the developers at the end of this, you know, we've yep. seen organizations like Stripe, you know, create their entirety of their, uh, their success based on really being the best people to work with from a developer perspective. Mm -hmm. that, that's, I guess, an interesting new challenge, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. It is a huge challenge because we never tackled that community. It's completely new to us. Mm. So as a CMO, I'm, I'm really looking for how do we address this complete new community. Our classical enterprise language doesn't work in that space. Mm -hmm. uh, so well, well, and they're pretty tough customers, right? They're pretty picky in what they do, and they pick the uh, path of least resistance every time, right? Exactly. So, and and a hole in your API and a security flaw is the bad marketing. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like they want the code to be good. It's how good is your code? Uh, uh, I nearly broke into the Bee Gees, how deep is your love? Wow. <laughs> how good is your code? That that was, yeah, that would have been a very interesting little, yeah. like, feel free I verbalized it so I didn't have to I'm do fine. it. That was, that was my get out of jail card. Mm. But I think you've obviously got a lot of relationships from the, the, the legacy Mysis and DNH businesses. Have you had any challenges getting people to understand the Finastra platform vision? And Nicola, what, what's that look like? And how do you get people aligned to all of that? I think it's about communicating that vision in the simplest way possible because we've got customers across the breadth from treasury and capital markets all the way to the small community banks who may have two branches in the US. So it's really about how do you communicate the benefits of that platform? And actually for some of those customers, they are going to see some of those benefits more quickly because they can implement some of these things and move to cloud and put some of these things in action um, a lot faster than others. So it, it's really, you know, there's a huge effort at the moment that we've got about how do we move forward and, and get that across. So in any event that we do in communication, we're always talking about the platform and the benefits that that can deliver. And so, Martin, talk to me a little bit about as well, what would you take away from the experience of, of this rebranding and what could somebody learn from it if they're looking down the barrel of their own rebranding potentially? Well, the whole exercise of rebranding was really um, exciting because normally in marketing, you, you would always say never change a winning brand. And Mises was a, was a winning brand, TNH was a winning brand. So the question, why remove both brands and create something new? You, lost, you lose a lot of brand equity uh, right from the start. But the reason was both companies were at the same size, 5,000 people. And the question is, how do you bring 5,000 people together and make them feel we are uh, looking towards the same future? We are building the same uh, future. And, and this is where we decided, what about if we create not just a new brand, but also a new story behind? I, I think that's interesting because you see a lot with mergers and acquisitions uh, historically, like one brand wins and the one that isn't the winning brand always ends up a bit droopy shouldered and a bit like we didn't win out at the end of the day and it's not our <laughs> systems anymore. And actually avoiding that's kind of interesting. Exactly. Uh, and we wanted to avoid that, that kind of effect. So we said, okay, let's create that common brand, but also behind that brand, 
um, create the story. And maybe, uh, Nicola, you can talk a bit about the background, uh, how we created it, and even the, the meaning of Finestra. Yes. Yeah, what does it so, mean? What does it mean? Well, Finestra is, we, we wanted to have a name that, well, we went through a long process of looking at different names, obviously, um, but we really wanted something with Fin for financial, FinTech Insider, 11FS, you know, it, it's really so that kind of, it does what it says on the tin. Um, but then Astra is star. So it's this idea of being the star um, in the financial universe. And we all, the way that we think about things is our customer is the sun. So we're kind of in the universe. The customer is at the center. And then we have this ecosystem, if you like, this galaxy universe um, around it. So that's how it came together. But in terms of developing the brand, we, we kind of started from that point. So part of it was driven by bringing the two organizations together, completely new stage in the journey, how we wanted to move forward. But it was also looking at how the market's changing because it was changing dramatically in terms of uh, new challenges coming in, customer expectations, very technology driven, you know, lots of different changes. And then we had this vision. So the Fusion Fabric dot cloud vision, we were already working on that idea at Mises in terms of opening up and componentizing our own systems and then moving it onto the platform. So it's a great opportunity to look forward. And we spent uh, quite a bit of time kind of speaking internally and externally and kind of getting that vision right. And then we came up with a strap line, the future of finance is open, which spoke to everything that we believe in, in terms of how that moves forward. And to be honest, once we got that, everything just kind of streamed down from there and it was... And this was a bit triggered uh, by my personal experience. Uh, 23 years back, I worked for a company called Sun Microsystems. Uh, yeah. I worked with a with the father of Java, James Goslin, and, and he said one sentence, 99% of innovation happens elsewhere, mm -hmm. not in your company. Yeah. So if you don't leverage that kind of innovation from the outside, you're making a big mistake. Mm -hmm. And this is why he gave Java away for free. A lot of people said, are you stupid? Uh, would you have monetized it? Maybe Sun Microsoft would still exist. Maybe that was the biggest mistake. But at the end of the day, Java became the de facto language in, in enterprise computing. Mm -hmm. And I think triggered by that a bit, by that idea of opening up everything and creating an ecosystem that creates innovation on top of what you build. Mm. That's the essential idea. Uh, and that is the story really behind Finestra, behind the brand. And I think that's the excitement that we created inside the company. So people say, hey, either you are from Mises or from DNH, this is our big mission. But the outside and, and, world is the mission. Astra outside exactly. is, is the mission. And I think that Sun Microsystems example is interesting because it was probably just early. Now, if you look at the big techs, creating open source software is something that, and they're massive consumers of open source software, but they also create a lot of it. And that's table stakes. And if you're not doing that, you, you know, there's, there's still, I think, a little bit in financial services of not invented here syndrome. Like organizations want to own their own propositions and own their own code. And, well, and getting many, away from that's really hard. How many times have you heard uh, in a bank somebody go, well, yeah, that fintech's quite interesting, but we could just build that. And it's like, we know you never could. Yes. You know, we, uh, <laughs> oh, it's just a this. Is, oh, yeah. it's just a that. Oh, they won't get as many deposits. Yeah, exactly. So, so you, you, know, you, you talked a little bit there about using that narrative internally, because I think that's a, a huge a huge point on this. This isn't just a, uh, you know, outside of these four walls, what uh, Finestra now stands for. This is, like you say, the creating of that common vision for everybody internally. H how have you sort of gone about um, aligning the troops, essentially? Well, I think uh, th that's the interesting part. How do you get that vision into 10,000 people? And and, and maybe I'll hand over here to, to Simon. We created a, a kind of war cry internally. We <laughs> called it Mission 2021. Because uh, we said this is a this is not a sprint; it's a marathon over the next three years, 
uh, and we were sitting together as a management team and said, okay, what is the war cry behind and what, what is the, the, the vision that we want to get across into the company and how can we make people feel that we are on the right trajectory to reach that? Maybe, Simon, you, you, you take Yeah, it. maybe, Nicola, we do this together, you and I. Mm -hmm. So it, it does recognize what you said, that this is not something that's going to happen in a fiscal year. It's a, it's a multi-year ambition and it's an ennobling vision. So everything starts with what I covered and Ellie said, which is the vision and the mission, which are two different things, right? So our vision, our ennobling purpose, the reason why 10,000 people get out of bed is because we believe we can do well by doing good. We believe we can unlock the potential of people and businesses everywhere. And we give specific examples. So for example, I'm also the chairman of the World Trade Board. I believe we can help resolve through technology the $1.6 trillion trade financing gap. I believe we can release trillions of dollars of liquidity. I believe we can make capital markets more resilient so we do not get a repeat of 2008. I believe our platform can invite hundreds of thousands of developers, including people who are disabled, who have less access, to be able to explore their opportunities in innovation and coding. So that's the vision. The mission is what Ellie said, which is if we execute and hold true to that ennobling purpose, then we can become the number one open platform for financial services in the world. I don't know if you want to take it down a layer or two, Nicola, and continue the journey. Yeah, so it's then, if you're talking about getting the troops kind of in, enabled around that, it's so starting obviously with the the branding, obviously we, we launch that out to people. You have to get everybody centered around understanding what the brand is, understanding what it means. We did a series of events internally when that launched so that everybody understood at the same time what that meant. It's then about getting everybody, just because you say we've got a new brand uh, and we've come together as one company doesn't mean that that happens overnight. So then you have to generate the culture internally. And the culture, again, is not something you can dictate from the top. So we invited people to say, if you want to get involved in what our cultural values are, come together, get involved in workshops. So that was very much that from the ground up. really important, isn't it? It's hugely important because people, and this is where you get passion, loyalty, commitment from people. And we've got a lot of that within Finastra and innovation. And I think it, it's through a culmination of lots of things. So we have um, hackathons internally. We have spark days where anybody across the organization can get involved with ideas, which we then, and in fact, Lendercom is a great example of that because that came from one of these internal ideas that sparks it up. So it's about getting that. This is the direction from the top, which you need to understand where we're going and what the strategy is, but then getting everybody involved in being a part of it's that. It's so rare I hear a company that knows what their purpose is. So many of them know what their strategy and the mission is, but very few know their actual purpose, like why. Not what, not how, but but why. And a lot of people talk about their why as being, well, you know, we're going to uh, help financial services or we're going to help people with their business. But it's actually, no, we're going to leave impact. And, and you see this in capital markets, the difference between ESG and impact. So the uh, ESG is like I buy a lot of carbon credits because I feel bad about having a hybrid, you know, not having a hybrid car or whatever. That's not me, by the way. That's somebody. Um, but like you, you can don't off even own a car, do you? Yeah, exactly. But you can offset your evil with ESG. Yeah. Um, if if you're not evil, great. But you could offset it if you were. And then impact is really about what you leave in the world and what you produce and your outputs. And that vision gives you that ability to have impact. So if you're doing it for a purpose to prevent the next financial crisis, to help people into work, to uh, really, I think what's 40% of the cost of everything in this room, every table, every phone, everything that we touch 
comes from trade inefficiencies. If you can make a difference to that, you can make a material impact to poor people's lives, right. to the next billion and the bottom billion in society. Yeah. That's why people get out of bed in the morning is to make a difference on those things that are important to them. So I think having that is so different. So you guys have a lot of CSR initiatives, but you have impact too. Mm -hmm. How do these two come together? Um, I think that the, there was a lot of CSR activity already happening across the organisation. I think what we've done is just brought that together into a programme so that we can um, consolidate some of the, those ideas. Because as Simon said, it, you know, doing well by doing good is obviously what we're doing through the technology, but also giving back to communities. And I think we've uh, we've recently pointed a CSR director and he's just got tremendous traction in some programmes very quickly. So we're a software company. What do we have? Particularly if you look at the UK, we have a dearth of skills in uh, data science, in artificial intelligence, in coding, girls in coding, all so those sorts of things. So um, we've partnered with a company who does a scheme called Hour of Code and you get school children just to come and you show them and let them practice and have a go at coding. And just, you know, we've been partnering with some schools in London, but we took this out very quickly globally. And in three months, we had more than 2,000 school children who'd participated, and that's growing all the time, um, where you just bring them in. And I brought my own son in with a friend. We had um, a day for employees to, to bring them in. And both of them, you know, they're seven years old. They were sitting there with their headphones on. Even I did some coding, which quite frankly is a bit of a miracle. Um, but it was great. They had such fun. And at the end of it, their comment was, I wish it was two hours of code. Um, but Sign them up, just Ellie, right? To... <laughs> so, so it's things like that where we can give back to the community, but around it. So it's not just about doing charity, which is an important thing, and we still want to do that. But how can we look at kind of exciting the next generation of people who quite frankly we want to attract to come and work for us as well okay. so mentoring is something that we're looking at now to really get young people to get them excited about how they can come and how we can help them with some skills yeah. to be able to come into an organization like finastra impact is super important um so i want to round us out then what does the future hold for finastra where would we be uh, in that at the end of the marathon what what does the world look like and uh, you know what's exciting you yeah, so good point. End of the marathon. So it's hard in technology to see beyond three years because, you know, we often say in our company, if you join the Navy, expect to see the sea, right? So you can see, <laughs> you can see three years of sea and then, you know, we'll see. But I think um, it goes back to what we said earlier. I think uh, we intend to grow the company significantly, organically and inorganically. And that will be true for the core applications and it will be true for the platform business. And it will be true through the innovation that ignites, including some of our proprietary innovation. Uh, and I think you'll just see more of the same. I think it's uh, a very exciting journey ahead. Anything, any last words from anyone else? Take a deep breath. <laughs> Imagine a world where you're getting banking services, but it could come from anywhere and from anybody. Where we help underbanked people all over the world and the other things that Nicola and others have mentioned. That's what Finastra is about. I think we just found the opening sentence to the whole show. Uh, well, that concludes the FinTech Insider uh, Finastra takeover. Thanks for having us. Uh, thanks for setting up the room in a beautiful way. Uh, where can people find out about Finastra? If you go to the website, finastra.com, um, we have lots of events. I think one of the most important things is the 21st and 22nd of May, Tobacco Docs. Uh, the website is going live today, so you'll be able to look at that, see what's coming, register. 
Um, I think that's going to be the most important and exciting thing that's coming up in the next few weeks. If you're a fintech weeks. and there's 9,000 banks you want to go and there's a platform that you can access. Why with, wouldn't you want to be there? Will, yeah, it, yeah. It seemed apt not to at least take a look, wouldn't exactly. it? Exactly. So if, you're, if you're a fintech, check out uh, fusionfabric.cloud. Beautiful. Alrighty. Um, and uh, do you have social accounts you want to give a shout out to? Uh, sure. Follow us on LinkedIn. Beautiful. Alrighty, uh, thanks very much. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Fintech Insiders. Where can people find out more about you, David? Um, what am I going to go with this week? I'm still playing. Uh, I've, do you know what? I've actually started playing a lot of other games, so I'm not going to give that one out. But find me on Twitter at uh, David Brew. Yeah, you've moved on from <laughs> PUBG. Is it Apex Legends now? It is a little bit. Yeah, yeah I really. knew it would happen. Uh, you can find me at SY Taylor on Twitter. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode, and leave a review on iTunes. Those reviews help us so much. We'll have more insights and takeovers coming very soon. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.